Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. We are talking about black history this week on the show. First up with Kevin Young, the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. He is also a much lauded poet who says he's drawn inspiration for his poetry from Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight boxing champion. And then speaking of champions, we're also going to talk to fencer Ibtahaj Muhammad. She made history as the first American woman to wear a hijab while competing in the Olympics. Then we're going to hear from writer Clyde W. Ford about his father, who was the first black software engineer at IBM. And as if all that weren't enough, we're going to wrap things up with some music from Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Amethyst Kia. We've got a great show in store for you. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. I'll tell you something, though. Um, Hmm. You know, we talk a lot on the show about the challenges that parents are facing during the pandemic and how we're fortunate that we don't have, uh, you know, children living at home with us. Well, mm-hmm. my daughter is actually here with me <gasps> today as I'm recording the show. So I finally know what it's like to try to work and parent during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Just, she's 27. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she's just working from home in the other room. Yeah, you have a, I bet it's really hard to keep her uh, on task with, you know, all her classes yeah. and gym. Sure. And- it's pretty low impact. I've just been occasionally texting her saying, can you bring me some more tea? So <laughs> I get it. Hey, are you ready to do this radio show? Yeah, let's do it. Molly, are we recording this thing? We are recording. All right. Take it away, Elena. <laughs> From PRX, it's Livewire, recorded from our actual houses. Welcome to the Livewire House Party. This week, poet Kevin Young, Olympic medalist and fencer Ibtihaj Mohammed, and writer Clyde W. Ford, with music from Amethyst Kia. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, from a small room just off his kitchen, the host of Livewire, Lou. Ah, uh, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thank you for the finger lasers. <laughs> Just what I needed this week. 
<laughs> uh, welcome to the house party, everyone. We have a fun and a really interesting show in store for you LiveWire listeners this week. Uh, in honor of Black History Month, we have lined up a bunch of amazing guests. Yeah. But I do mean a bunch, like almost too many amazing guests. <laughs> um, so instead of uh, chatting it up here at the top of the show like we usually do, we're just going to kind of get right to the good stuff. Uh, our first guest has written 13 books of poetry and been a finalist for the National Book Award. Um, and as if that weren't enough, last month he became the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Way back in 2016, though, he was a Livewire guest and he was on the show to talk about his poetry collection, Blue Laws. Take a listen to this. It's Kevin Young, recorded live at Mississippi Studios in Portland. Kevin, welcome to LiveWire. Thanks. Good to see you. This is a pretty incredible book, which is a collection of, of poetry that you've been writing for some time. I thought maybe we could start things out by um, by hearing something. Could you read uh, Black Jack, which is about the boxer Jack Johnson? Absolutely. Uh, Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight champ. And so this is a poem sort of in his voice talking about what it was like. Black Jack. Some call me spade, stud, buck. Black. That last I take as compliment. I am black, and they won't let me forget it. I'm Jack to my friends, Lil' Arthur, like that king of England to my mama. Since I got crowned champ, most white folks would love to see me whooped. They call me dog, cad, or card, then bet on me to win. I'm still an ace, and the whole world knows it. Don't mean most don't want me done in. But I got words for them too when I'm through. Most chumps wish they were counting cash instead of sheep, stars. Ideal blows like cards. One round, 20 rounds, more. I'm black all right and I'll never let them forget it. Stepping to me, in or out the ring, you gamble. Go ahead then, dealer. Hit me again. That's Kevin Young. <laughs> From his new book, Blue Laws. Was that part of why Jack Johnson was, I mean, not only famous for his athletic prowess, but notable because he seemed to live life very much on his own terms when that was something that was incredibly dangerous for a black man to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they invented the term the great white hope to try to defeat him. So, you know, he had this fascinating career. He, uh, the color line was drawn against him. People wouldn't box him. So he had to sort of chase around these white champs around the world and follow them and sort of, you know, he invented trash talking in that way we're used to now from Muhammad Ali and others, but he sort of perfected that early on. And um, he was a fascinating figure. And uh, this comes from, a, uh, originally was in a book called To Repel Ghosts about Jean-Michel Basquiat, the painter, um, who had painted a Jack Johnson portrait. So that's how I started to think about Jack Johnson. And Basquiat, too, as a kind of different heavyweight champ 
who faced his own challenges, you know, 80 years later. Uh, so I was thinking a lot about both that and, and this kind of legacy of race, but also championship and maj- majesty, you know, and how um, to live life on one's own terms, like you said. Um, what is your process like for, for writing things? Man, you have written a lot of poetry, my friend. <laughs> I've read a lot of it. And, they they uh, say that, yeah. I'm curious, though, how, like, how you harness that, and, and even down to the granular level, like, what is your schedule like? Do you write X number of hours a day? I wish. Um, <laughs> I, I write when I can at this point. I mean, I'm busy. Uh, but I also, you know, I feel like a little like Prince only in the sense that, you know, I fear there's Everyone a Everyone in this room wants to make love to <laughs> yeah, you right yes, now? Yes, <laughs> You know, just, <laughs> just because I, I believe in that kind of work ethic, you know, and that you got to get stuff done whenever. So, yeah, I, I just try to get writing done. And doing this book, Blue Laws was real different because I was looking through 20 years of poetry of mine and sort of seeing what worked, what fit together, how do you pick and choose from it. Um, And that was really interesting to see these kind of connections across books. When you have an idea for a poem and and then you you sort of start in on it, at what point do you know if it's working or not working? I mean, sometimes like five years later. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like I was writing these poems, but they were about music and pop and death and the 1980s uh and they had prince in them of course because that was sort of part of my growing up and then prince died and suddenly they become elegies you know these poems that are just praise songs um and so you know that happens faster than you think you know you you can't sit around and think well in five years i'd love my prince elegy to come out you it makes you want to finish you know so sometimes life comes in and forces your hand and forces you to Get busy. Uh, We're talking to Kevin Young. His new book is Blue Laws, which is a collection of his poetry over the last 20 years. Um, You write a lot about the black experience in this country, and I can't help but think about the impact that hip-hop now has and rap music, and that being, in a way, the, the poetry that often describes the black experience in this country. Maybe more, it's certainly more widely absorbed now than, say, something that you might write in a book of poetry, right? Yeah, but I mean, I think Beyonce is the <laughs> one leading the charge. Um, the thing I sometimes miss is hip-hop was one kind of music among many. You know, like, hip-hop isn't for every occasion. Sometimes you need a little prince, right, late at night? I mean, so to me, like, that kind of mix of musics is hip-hop at its best, too, because, you know, if you listen to early hip-hop, they're sampling everything from Billy Joel to... Craft work, and so I love that kind of mix of music, and I love that hip hop says that's really important, and that the mix is really the thing. And you know, in a way, just collectively, it does what Prince does, which is listen to everything, put it in a blender, and make you dance to it. And so, to me, that's what black music has often done, whether it's the blues or jazz, um, always quoting and 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 taking risks. It feels that we are at this incredibly important moment in this country as it pertains to race. Yeah. Um, this is a, an auspicious and important moment for, for our country. As somebody who writes about the black experience, do you feel hopeful about the direction things are moving in? I do. You know, I, I have you know, a son who thinks of the world in such an open way. That's so nice to see. And you know, I have a book about him being born. And um, I think of the world through his eyes sometimes, you know, and... The drag is, you know, he's nine now. I have to have the talk with him about what to do. 
if a cop comes across him. I mean, that's a heavy thing. Like, there's the sex talk, there's the what to do when a cop stops. You know, these are not things you're looking forward to, but one can really kill you. And so, you know, that's heavy, um, but at the same time, it's part of life. And I, I guess I, I think the other part of life is the joy, you know, the pleasure. Um, and that's why, you know, I think Beyonce is so great. And I think why poetry is so great. Poetry is in a really interesting place now, too. African-American poetry especially, where it's talking about these things. It's able to talk about the daily lives of people, but also laugh and, and, and make fun and make music and um, do all the things that I think poetry and music at its best does. Well, speaking of poetry at its best, could you read one more um, sure. piece for us before, before we're done here? You have a number of different odes in this book, odes to different things. This might have been my favorite. Okay. Ode to Pork. Yes. <laughs> I have all these odes to everyday things, and they were you know, started by something serious about my father dying, and I couldn't write for a while, and then I wrote these poems. Um, but they're really about hunger in many ways and missing things um, and missing the food of my childhood, which um, I guess was soul food, but as my father said, we just called it food. <laughs> so this is Ode to Pork. I wouldn't be here without you. Without you, I'd be umpteen pounds lighter and a lot less alive. You stuck round my ribs even when I treated you like a dog, dirty, I dare not eat. I know you're the blues because loving you may kill me. But still, you rock me down slow as ham hocks on the stove. Anyway, you come fried, cued, burnt to within one inch of your life. I love Babe, I revere your every nickname. Bacon, chitlin, cracklin, sin. Some call you murder, shame's stepsister, then dress you up and declare you white and healthy. <laughs> but you always come back sauced to me. Adam himself gave up a rib to see yours piled pink beside him. Your heaven is the only one worth wanting. You keep me all night cursing your four-letter name. The next, begging for you again. Thanks. That was Kevin Young here on the Livewire House Party talking about his poetry collection, Blue Laws. We recorded that back in 2016. Um, I'll tell you, Elena, Kevin Young's career has really taken off <laughs> since we did that interview with him. I wish we could take credit for that. You know what? Fine. We'll take like a small amount of credit for that. Uh, <laughs> he became the poetry editor at The New Yorker mm -hmm. in, in 2017. And then just recently, he became the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and culture. Wow. Uh, so, uh, congratulations to Kevin Young. And, and a message to other folks who are considering coming on Livewire. <laughs> it's amazing for the career. We are the trampoline. That's right. <laughs> you bounce off of a Livewire interview up into the stratosphere of professional accomplishment. <laughs> you are listening to the Livewire House Party from PRX. We got to take a quick break, but when we come back, uh, we're going to talk to a groundbreaking U.S. Olympic fencer, as well as the son of another person who broke some ground the first black computer programmer at IBM. Stay with us. This is Livewire. Hey, Elena. 
Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating Black History this week, and our next guest made history at the 2016 Rio Summer Games, where she became the first woman to compete for the United States wearing a hijab. And she actually won a bronze medal. And get this, they even designed a Barbie doll after her. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, bronze medal. Barbie doll design. Those are two pretty, pretty huge accomplishments. Uh, which one would you pick, Elena? I would want a bronze Barbie doll. <laughs> uh, she wrote about her whole experience in a book called Proud, My Fight for an Unlikely American Dream. Uh, take a listen to this. It's our chat with Ibtahaj Mohammed, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland back in 2019. Hello. How are you? Good. Welcome to Livewire. Thank you for having me. Hey, Portland. Um, You grew up in New Jersey, and you grew up in a family that was African-American, but also observant Muslims, right? So your parents were not born into the Muslim faith, if I understand it right? No. uh, My parents converted in the 70s. I think my parents did a great job in making faith a really solid part of our lifestyles. And I grew up in a town uh, about 30 minutes outside of New York City, Maplewood, New Jersey, that was very inclusive, an inclusive space. And as a Muslim kid growing up in a, you know, predominantly white neighborhood, I just, I didn't feel different. I literally thought everyone had similar practices to us. I have to say that that was a part of the book where I was like, okay, I know how this ends. They moved to Maplewood, New Jersey. They're a Muslim family. This is going to be like fish out of water. And they were like, and then I made a best friend named Amy. <laughs> like, it seems like you fit in pretty fast. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I feel like I've learned to adapt to certain spaces or really more so of just having this, this confidence as a kid where I didn't allow people to make me feel out of place. Um, I just was always that kid who wanted to excel, whether that be in sport or in the classroom or even just as like one of five kids who wanted to like impress my parents all the yeah. time. Um, not everyone appreciates that energy. So I learned not to care what other people think. You know, people aren't going to always accept you, your tenacity, your work ethic, who you are, what you look like. And it's really, you know, more so about how you feel about yourself and who cares what other people think. Uh, one of the things that drew you, if I understand right, towards fencing, and your parents were interested in it as a sport for you, was because you could wear hijab and do the sport. Was that, I mean, what, what, what did you think of fencing the first time you actually saw it going on? Did you, were you immediately drawn to it? Well, I, I think that you can wear hijab in any sport. Uh, we were literally driving past the local high school in our town. I was 12. Uh, my mom and I were at a stoplight, and to the right of our car, we could see into the school cafeteria, into the local high school, and we saw athletes inside that had on long white jackets, white pants, we thought they were wearing helmets, and my mom looks over at me and she's like, I don't know what that is, but when you get to high school, you're going to try it out. Really? And, yeah. That's how I started fencing. Thank God it was just fencing. Yeah. <laughs> That could have been a biohazard site. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of bad things that could have been. No, there were children. It looked oh. organized. We knew it was a sport. We just couldn't put a name to it okay. at the moment. Okay. Um, but as a kid, for me, you know, I knew, I always knew I wanted to go to a top school. I wanted to go to one of the, you know, world's best universities. But I come from a large family. My dad's, both my parents are now retired, but my dad um, is a narcotics detective. My mom was a teacher. And when you come from a large family, you have to be or a working class family, you have to be creative with how you plan to pay for college. And for me, I saw fencing as a means to an end, you know? When I looked at the top 10 schools, this is at 12, by the way. Um, <laughs> but I remember Googling, you know, the top 10 schools and they all had fencing teams. So for me, it was this light bulb moment as a kid. I was like, oh, I can use this sport to set myself apart from everyone else. And I can use it to, you know, get into a top school. So that was always my plan. That's why... I was so into fencing when I started. Not that I loved it. Um, <laughs> I just... Um, wow, this is really not oh. turning into the ad for fencing I was expecting. <laughs> I am the most competitive person you will ever meet. So if there's something in front of me that I, I like, you know, I'm very myopic in my focus. If there's something that I want to excel at, I'm a workhorse. And that's what fencing's always been for me. I, I, I think I enjoy the rush of putting in the hard work and the time and effort in order to be successful in whatever it is. By the way, this is a live wire radio. We're talking to Olympic fencer Ibtahaj Muhammad. Can you explain fencing for people? There's a three kind of disciplines in it for people that don't really know. They just think it's sword fighting. It's obviously a lot more than that. What is going on with fencing? Yeah, so there's three weapons in fencing. There's foil, epee, and saber. Saber being the best. That's the one that I fence. <laughs> um, so we're more like the sprinters of fencing, saber fencers. And epee, they're more like the marathoners. And I would say foil's like the middle distance. I started in epee. I fenced epee for three years. Uh, fell asleep and was like, this is so boring. Uh, it's really slow. Um, I think I enjoyed how fast Sabre was. So when my high school team, I mean, I come from this, this amazing high school program, the best in the country, um, and our, our program needed a Sabre fencer, and my coach literally forced me to, 
to switch weapons. And thank God he did, or else we wouldn't be sitting here chatting. So um, I think I like the thrill that happens with Sabre that you may not get in the other weapons. Um, you, you went to Duke University. Uh, you were a fencer there, but you write in the book that you really didn't feel that connected to a lot of the other people on the team other than the other person of color who was on the team. What was it like for you being a part of fencing, being a Muslim American, being a woman of color, wearing hijab? I mean, were you commonly the only person that kind of looked like you trying to do this thing? I would say so, especially I remember as a kid, I was at a competition or like at a local tournament and a parent came up to me and she said, did you know there are black people who fence in New York City? And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, you know, I don't know, maybe 16. And I remember thinking to myself, dang, that's mad offensive. But huh. I was curious. I like went on Google and I was like, black people, New York City fencing. I like had to find it because it was like unicorns, right? Because I didn't see it as a kid. I didn't see. Even though you were in New Jersey and you were really competitive with this, you weren't aware of this other scene that was going on. Oh, no. So who knew that there was this, this life outside of high school fencing? I had no idea. And I remember my mom took me into the city to the Peter Westbrook Foundation, uh, a nonprofit that was founded by six-time Olympian, 13-time national champion Peter Westbrook. And, you know, fencing changed his life in a way that he wanted to do the same thing, you know, for other kids, not just kids of color, but kids from underserved communities, underrepresented communities. And he started this program. There's 250 kids every single Saturday in New York City learning a fence. Wow. And it was the first time I had ever even heard about world championships or, you know, fencing in the Olympics and winning medals and traveling the world for a sport. But um, I think that's when my journey in sport really kind of took a shape of its own. Uh, you did make the Olympics. You won uh, a bronze medal. What is that like to stand on that podium and hear the music? Did you cry? Um, no, because I'm really into my eyeliner. So I'm like, no way I'm messing this up. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I remember when, uh, so I won bronze with my team. And I remember just thinking to myself, man, I can't believe this is happening. Because you're running down all those different moments where it almost seemed like, it wasn't going to happen, right? Like you weren't even going to qualify for the team. I yeah. spent a really long time not even allowing the people close to me to say the word Olympics because I thought that it was such a far-fetched thing that if you spoke it, it would almost be like, it would almost disappear, you know? So, and this is not just for me as like a professional athlete, but for each of us, when you really think about your life and what you do and the voices, right, that you maybe hear from friends, family, from society telling you, you're too old, you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, you can't do it. And we have to make conscious effort to like block all that stuff out and learn to believe in yourself. I just knew I was working towards something and whether or not God had written for me, I was like to be determined, but I'm gonna like bust my ass trying to get there. Well, you did it, congratulations. Ibtihaj Muhammad, the book is proud, my fight for an unlikely American dream. That was Ibtihaj Muhammad, recorded back in 2019 right here on the Live Wire House Party. Uh, an update on Ibtihaj, she released a picture book, which became a New York Times bestseller. So now we can add Olympic medalist, Barbie doll uh, model, and New York Times bestseller to the list. That's a lot of accomplishments for one lifetime. Amen. If zero of those accomplishments, that's fine. <laughs> 
Uh, also, Ibtahaj is now a global ambassador for Special Olympics, where she is working to increase participation for women and girls in sports. Special thanks this episode to Chris Becker in my one-time hometown of Port Townsend, Washington, the small maritime village of. Uh, Chris <laughs> is part of the Livewire member community and generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we are very, very thankful for that because it's how we're able to do the show. So, Chris, thank you so much for keeping Livewire going. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. It is Black History Month, of course, and we are celebrating that with our show this week. Our next guest has an amazing story about black history, and it's the story of his actual father, who was the first black systems engineer to work at IBM back in the 1940s. The book is called Think Black. It is totally fascinating, and it really kind of touches on the intersections of race and technology uh, and family. So take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Clyde W. Ford. We recorded this at the Neptune Theater in Seattle back in 2019. Clyde, welcome to Livewire. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, um, Elena. So this book is so fascinating. Um, your father, Stanley, was handpicked by Thomas J. Watson, who was the, the president of IBM, to work at IBM and be the first African-American to have the kind of job he had, right? How did that come together? How did your dad get on his radar? Yeah, so my dad was the first black software engineer in America. And um, I got on his radar, I think, because Watson was looking for ways to divert the attention away from some of the other things that IBM was involved in. Really? Yes. And uh, some of those other things weren't so wonderful. You know, I was just listening to a program um, this morning on the radio about a... Um, a, a protest that was going on against Amazon in Boston. And it was a protest by um, Jewish activists for peace. And one of the things they were saying in that protest, they were talking about IBM's early involvement in the Holocaust. And that's one of the things that when I started to ask that question, why was my dad hired? The answer I came up with was that he was hired to divert attention away from IBM's involvement in the Holocaust. Before that, eugenics after my dad was working for IBM, IBM's in deep involvement in apartheid. And so I have to say, it was a hard book to write as I began to learn more about the company my dad worked for, that I worked for, and about the role of technology in race, race relationships, diversity, and some of the issues that we're still trying to address to this very day in the world of high tech. Was there really a moment where there's this computer, I guess a very early computer, is it called the 404? 407. The 407. IBM 407. That you talk about your dad trying to complete this test on where he basically brought a, this computer or a bunch of versions of it to the church and had the ladies from the church doing computer programming in like the Bronx? Yeah, and so one of the things my dad relied on was his community. 
We grew up in the Williamsbridge area of the Bronx that was really a kind of an upward striving African-American community. And when my dad got in trouble in terms of not being able to complete what he needed to do at work, he sought help out from his community. So that community was Trinity Baptist Church on two, uh, 224th Street in the Bronx. And so there was then a source of people who could support and help him. And I was talking to somebody backstage in the green room who was saying, you know, one of the things I learned about is that women were very early on involved in the early days of computing. Sure. And the Apollo the, 11, right? The, the... One of the reasons there, even before Apollo 11, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, is that women during World War II had developed skills as switchboard operators, and the early computers were programmed by plugging wires in here and there. And so women, like the women in the church, had those skills that my dad could rely on. We're talking to Clyde W. Ford. His new book is Think Black, a memoir. It's about uh, his father's time at IBM and then later your time at IBM. Um, When did you start to see your dad and how he was moving through the world differently? Because you write about how when you were a little kid, you kind of idolized him the way a lot of sons idolize their fathers. But at some point, your perspective on on how he was making his way in the largely white world really changed. Yeah, and so I'm wearing a dashiki right now. Yes. And I wear it to remind myself of when this became popular. It was in the 60s, late 60s. And it was during that time, it was an expression of kind of African-American self-identity. And I think it was as I was growing into that, as, uh, as a young man and realizing that there was something I was reaching for as a young black man that my father wasn't reaching for in terms of how he was working uh, in a very corporate, very white world. And that's when I began to start to see myself very differently from my dad. Um, my dad, you know, and I say this in the book, and, and it was hard to really come to terms with this, but as a black man, my dad was in many ways embarrassed by his own skin color. Hmm. And he worked in a world which reinforced that embarrassment. And I felt like that wasn't me. I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to be somebody who was proud of who I was. And I remember one dramatic moment that I talk about in the book where my dad and I got into an argument about the Vietnam War. And I had to say to him, hey, you may work for IBM, but that doesn't necessarily make you the man that I want to grow into be. Wow, that must have been really hard for him to hear. It was a very painful discussion. And then look, I went to work for IBM. Yeah. Right? And you showed up on day one in a very <laughs> different outfit than your dad was wearing to work at IBM. Can you please describe oh for the radio gosh, listeners? Did I ever. So first of all, in those days, I had a lot more hair. And I had a big afro, a ballooned afro. I had a hat cocked on to one side. And um, I wore a... This is to IBM in the 19, this was 1970. I wore a blue pinstriped zoot suit. (laughs) There's a picture of this in the book, by the way. It is worth the price of admission just for the photo of Clyde. I wore a red, bright red turtleneck instead of a white shirt and tie. I had on platform patent leather shoes. (laughs) <laughs> you write this in the book, but I mean, had you legitimately the night before seen the movie Shaft? I had. That is a serious, serious thing. The night before, it was a Monday that I went to work for IBM. The Sunday night before that, I specifically went to the movies in New York City to see Richard Roundtree in Shaft. 
And I was really walking out of that subway station humming Isaac Hayes' theme song to Shaft, right? Everybody and should hum that on their way into work on that, Monday, right. man. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the funny thing, Elena, as I was writing that section of the book, I had uh, YouTube, uh, that listen on repeat thing where you can just, yeah. I, had that, I had Isaac Hayes playing chef. You had to get back <laughs> oh, had, into that mental state. Had, yeah, so exactly. you come into IBM in a very different way than yeah. your father did, but you also showed an incredible promise uh, when it came to computing because you'd been raised around it. You were also just a precociously smart person. Uh, what was the reaction to you with your outfit and your, you know, uh, sideburns and the whole look? Oh, my God. I mean, the first reaction that I'll never forget is another um, black fellow who was there walked over to my desk, sat down, leaned over to me and said, I don't think you get it. You're working for IBM now. And he said, white shirt. If you want to do something different, a blue shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the reaction was, and, and, hey, the truth was, I wanted IBM to know, yes, I was there, but I was different. I wasn't my dad. Yeah. And they would have to deal with me on my terms, and I wouldn't deal with them on their terms. One of the things that you write about in the book is the way that white oppression, part of how it operates, is to take people who are marginalized, and in the case of your book, African slaves and African Americans, and create a system where they have to compete with each other, or maybe feel like they have to compete with each other. And it seems to be a big theme in the book. I mean, it's been described as respectability politics, things like that. How do you make sense of that? And also, how do you find grace for people who are doing the best they can, even though the way they're expressing their blackness is different than what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think as a young man, that was a harder question for me to answer than it is now looking back. And it also is a question I was able to answer by better understanding my father. So one of the things that I became aware of is that my father had in the bottom of one of his dresser drawers, beneath his undershirts and beneath the Playboy magazines, he had an envelope that was perhaps more risque than those Playboy magazines. And what was in that envelope, Luke, were copies of the IBM entrance examination. Now, every so often, he would invite promising young black folks to the house and tell my sister and I to get lost. He would go into the bottom of that dresser drawer, pull out the envelope, sit down at a table with them, and coach them on how to pass that exam. I began to realize then, and my respect for my dad started to grow in realizing that he had his own way of dealing with the racism and the oppression that he faced. And what he was trying to do was to bring more people of color into the high-tech workspace. And so I realized then, I think I started to grow in an understanding, you can do things differently. Your reaction and your protest might be very vocal, and mine certainly were, but it could also be very subtle, as my dad's were, and I have to respect both. I mean, he ran an underground railroad for years at one of the biggest corporations in the world. Yeah. We're talking to Clyde W. Ford. His book about his father's time at IBM and also his is called Think Black, a memoir. Uh, of course, you, you only can speak for yourself, Clyde, but as a, as a person of color, we have, most of our listeners are white. I'm curious, 
for white people that want to try to make this country more equal and want to try to push back against the institutional and historical racism of this country, what is something in your opinion that people can do to be allies? Yeah, that's really great. And I think the first thing is just to talk to other people, just to have a dialogue. You know, one of the things I do, Luke, is I, is I actually go around the state of Washington for Humanities Washington. I'm on their speaking bureau, and I do a program called Let's Talk About Race. Now, most of the places I go to in Washington state, you don't find a lot of people of color. But that doesn't mean you can't talk about what the problem is. I think we don't have in this country a history of engagement around the issues that we would rather just keep in the past. I start my Humanities Washington talks by describing my time in Germany and South Africa where people there are willing to talk about what happened in the past for one principal reason, so it never happens again. Thank you. I think we have to come to that point here in the United States. You don't even have to talk to somebody of a different ethnicity or race. You can start that conversation in your family, with your children, with your parents, with your neighbors. I mean, I know that everybody knows someone in their family for whom that kind of in conversation would be both difficult but very important. That's the place to start being an ally, right there. Yeah. All right, Clyde, this book is amazing. You have lived many lifetimes, and we do not have time to get into all of them this time around, but I highly recommend people check out the book. It's called Think Black, a Memoir. It's by Clyde W. Ford. Thank you so much for being on LiveWire. That was Clyde W. Ford right here on Livewire. We recorded that back in 2019. And we were talking to him about his book, Think Black. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarella right over there. Um, now, our musical guest this week hails from Johnson City, Tennessee, and cites alternative rock, folk, country, and blues, among her many influences. Um, her song, Black Myself, was nominated for a Grammy and she's also part of this like really incredible supergroup called Our Native Daughters that also has uh, Rhiannon Giddens in it. Uh, this is Amethyst Kia, recorded last February. Elena, this was one of our final shows mm-hmm. in front of a live audience. Remember live audiences? Sort of. Those <laughs> wonderful, beautiful people who told us when our jokes were working or yes. more often when my jokes weren't working. Um, so this, though, this is nice, though, because this is uh, a reminder of what it was like when we got to do the show in front of a crowd. We recorded this at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland last year. What was your uh, kind of musical life growing up in Tennessee? What kind of music was playing? What were you interested in? So I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I lived there for the first 19 years of my life. And uh, both my mom and my dad uh, loved listening to music. And my dad was an audiophile. So he had a huge collection of music. So um, I just grew up listening to everything from Carlos Santana, Dolly Parton, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, just pretty much everything. So When did you actually start writing music and what were you writing about? Uh, so I started playing guitar. My parents bought me a guitar when I was 13 years old. And then that's when I really started to try to write songs. And I was really into alternative music when I was in my teens. So a lot of the songs I tried to write were um, sad and depressing. And 
about loss and struggle. So yeah, I don't know. That was that was my thing. <laughs> was there a particular alternative band that you loved that you were like maybe inadvertently writing kind of versions of that kind of music just because it was what you were consuming? Uh, I would say the two that always come to mind immediately are uh, Radiohead as far as rock bands, and then uh, Tori Amos was a huge inspiration. She's actually the reason, I would say that she was the reason that, that I decided I'm going to try and write songs. Not necessarily try to have a career in it, because at the time, I mean, I was, you know, 15, 16, I didn't know anything about that. I just knew, wow, I love the way that she writes, and I want to be as awesome as that, whatever that might mean. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're doing a good job so far. You're also part of this uh, super group called Our Native Daughters with uh, Rhiannon Giddens from Carolina Chocolate Drops and a number of other musicians. Yeah. Uh, what's it like collaborating with these other musicians as opposed to just doing your kind of solo stuff? Well, I mean, uh, collaborating with them, it was the first time I'd ever really co-written and done a collaborative project like this. So it was an incredible learning lesson for me in a lot of ways. And it also opened me up to my songwriting approach. When I got stuck, I, you know, throw it out. To the, to the group, and, you know, I co-wrote about two or three songs. And the other thing, too, was that being part of a project that was addressing um, the tragedy and triumph of the transatlantic slave trade and of all the subsequent, like, oppression that happened as a result of that, which that's the tragedy, but then also celebrating the triumph of all the shoulders that we're standing on and living our ancestors' wildest dreams by being able to travel the world and play music. And um, what's really been the most impactful, what's really meant the most to us is that we made this record and people aren't listening to this and thinking, oh, this is just a story about black people. This is a story, this is an American story. It's about Americans, really, so. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We gotta take a very quick break, uh, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back, you're gonna hear a song from Amethyst Kia that absolutely brought the house down. And I know this for a fact because I was there, Mm -hmm. as was Elena, when it was recorded back in February. So stay with us. You're not going to want to miss this. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the LiveWire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We are celebrating Black History this week on the show, and we're rejoining our conversation with singer-songwriter Amethyst Kia, uh, this is a performance that we recorded last February in Portland, back when we could have live audiences, something we're very excited to get back to mm. in the future times. In the meantime, take a listen to this. So you're going to play the song Black Myself, which was nominated for a Grammy. What was that like? Well, I mean, 
to be honest, I was on tour when I found out about it. I woke up at 9.30 in the morning in my hotel room in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I had... Where all good things happen. Right, exactly. So there were like, I don't know, there was like 50 notifications on my phone, and at first I thought, oh my God, what happened? Like, that's never, I've never had that many notifications before, and it was just people congratulating me for the nomination, and so... Um, uh, my dad is Carl Phillips. He, uh, tours, he tours with me on most of my shows. He drives and sells merch and, uh, helps me, uh, keep it together, if you will. And, um, yeah. And, and I was like, Hey dad, I, uh, got nominated for a Grammy. We both kind of just sat there and we were like, wow, because we'd been on this journey together for 10 years of playing shows and, you know, a lot of bumps along the way. But then also, it was almost 10 a.m. at this point, and it was time to check out of the hotel. So <laughs> it was business as usual. I had to keep it going because, you know, the, the thing about being nominated for a Grammy is that, if anything, it's not a sign that I've made it and that now I can sit back and relax. If anything, this is a sign that there's more to come and there's more that I still need to do, you know, so. Yeah. We're so glad to have you here. Um, and let's hear a song. All right, thank you. And I'm surrounded by many lovers 
Was Woo! Amethyst Kia <laughs> here on Livewire? Oh man, that was an awesome night. That was a really incredible performance and just an incredible experience to get to be around that. Um, if you want to find out more about what Amethyst is up to, you can go to her website, which is Amethyst Kia, and Kia is spelled K I A H dot com. Amethyst Kia. Com. She got a new version of that song you just heard oh. out, and it is oh, cool. incredibly fantastic. Uh, all right. Before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to filmmaker Davey Rothbart and a woman named Cheryl Sanford about this documentary called 17 Blocks. This is comprised of a 1,000 hours of footage over the course of 20 years of Cheryl Sanford's family. Wow. And their experiences and their lives over those um, two decades. It is an incredible film that is getting all kinds of rave reviews. We're also going to talk to the writer Matthew Gavin Frank, telling us the incredible and true story involving pigeons and diamonds being smuggled in the pigeons. Um, and uh, also we're going to get your answers to our listener question, which is where our social media manager, Ariana Donneville, comes in. Hey, Ariana. Hey, Luke. What's the question for the listeners next week? What's your favorite bird and why? <laughs> I knew that Elena was going to like this question. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you, if there is an audience that has a favorite bird, it's probably the Livewire audience. Oh, I can't wait to hear these answers. What's the best way for folks to send in their uh, responses, Ariana? Listeners can submit their answers on our social channels. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Livewire Radio, as well as on Facebook. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Ariana. That is going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks, as always, to our guests, Kevin Young, Ibtahaj Muhammad, Clyde W. Ford, and Amethyst Kia. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our social media manager. Music composition is by A. Walker Spring. And technical direction and audio mix is by Molly Pettit. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Live Wire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Tom and Diane Forsyth of Portland, Oregon. More information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.
Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. 